Alright, welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 308. Don't get stung by the wasp. This is Tony Bemis. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. Oh, man. Don't get stung by the wasp. We'll talk about that in the show, but it's a Linux rootkit floating around that was recently discovered. It'll be, uh, be an interesting topic. Definitely. We don't see a lot of Linux malware. Good news is, if your systems are patched, you should be safe. Um, it will dive into the details so you don't have to stop. And Well, if you're not patched, please stop listening or please start patching while you're listening mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. in general because uh, almost all these attacks that we talk about are always the same. Like it's unpatched systems, wide open systems. Um, that's that's the, still the root cause of most of why people obtain root access to your system. Uh, yeah. So what's new, Tony? So what's new? Uh Nothing computer-related. I I haven't touched my computer in, like, two, three weeks. Uh, wow. so, well, since the last show. Um, I've been busy working, finishing my patio at home. Oh, finally. So the one I started last year, August. Yeah. It's finally gotten warm enough where I can work on it, and I got all the bricks laid and the border in. I just have some uh, landscaping to do, and we're good to go. Very cool. Yeah. My uh, backyard is still a mud pit, and uh, from that giant hole, you know, they mm. filled the hole in, but the yard is covered in, right now, back to under probably three inches of water in some areas, sometimes deeper. Wow. It's been um, raining a lot. Yeah. They can't get equipment in my backyard because it will sink. So the, the they need to re-level it and regrade the whole backyard. I have almost an acre of property, so it's, this is a pretty big section of my yard that needs to be redone. They just can't get the equipment back there, so all mm-hmm. that whole project's on. So I've done no yard-related stuff. Bonus, I wow. haven't cut the grass because there's not any grass to cut. It's just mud. <laughs> <laughs> so my backyard's still useless because, oh, and it just poured last night. I woke up this morning, went outside, and I'm like, yep, there's there's yep. now four or five inches where there were two. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, I have a lake. I have waterfront. I don't think it's going to increase the value of my property. Just just build a pond at this I point. I thought you know, about just, it. Just, you already got the hole. Just, you know, just throw some cement in there, fill it with water. Fill it and... Make a pond out of it. Yeah. We could. Absolutely. Uh, so just patio work, no computer work. That's right. Been slow. Now, Jay has something fancy. I don't know if he wants to talk about it sitting I in front do of him. I want to talk about it. Yeah, because I have the newest System76 Oryx Pro laptop directly in front of me this was refreshed i want to say a week or two ago i think it might have been a soft refresh because i think it might just be a chipset or processor upgrade but this is the newest version it's 16 inch uh, laptop it's got a nvidia graphics card in it so i'll be playing some games on it and and i will be doing a review in about a week or so i recorded an unboxing yesterday so uh yeah i'll just be putting it through its paces i'll be doing video editing on it all my day-to-day stuff to see how it stacks up. So far, I really do like it. The only thing I don't really like so much is that it's 16 inches. It's ginormous. But it doesn't look so big until you put it next to a laptop that isn't 16 inches. And then mm-hmm. it's it's, um, it's dwarfing my little X250 here. But yours is a 12-inch, so pretty yeah. much anything. Well, a 13-inch will dwarf that. But my 14-inch Lenovo... For example, I also have a Galago Pro look very puny next to this thing. 
Performance is really good. I like the fact that the fan stays quiet all the time, unless I'm playing Doom. I mean, come on. When I'm playing Doom, the fan really cranks up. It's a really nice-looking laptop, though. Yeah, but when I'm not playing a game, though, I don't even notice a fan at all. In my X1 Extreme, I notice the fan all the time. It drives me crazy. It'll come on for any little reason. It could just be a background apt update kicks off, fan comes on, or anything like that. Um, This one, not so much. So, so far, so good. I think the big test for me will be how it operates with a Thunderbolt dock. Mm. If it charges over Thunderbolt and the external displays. Thunderbolt or USB-C? Thunderbolt. Well, really? Thunder, Thunderbolt goes over the same port, but okay. it is a Thunderbolt. So, okay. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that it'll work out well. Neat. So that'll be the next test, probably today, and then I'll just use it through the week and then record the um, you know review next week. So, yeah, Oryx Pro, definitely great so far. I am actually, in other news, my YouTube channel, LearnLinux.tv, I am, I actually made the decision, I don't know if I'm going to regret this because it's going to be a lot of work, to re-record my entire Linux Commands for Beginners series. Ooh. Mm. Because that the original was recorded on a Latitude D630 with a mono mic and was probably one of the first I've ever done. So it's, in my opinion, painful to listen to because the sound quality is just atrocious. And, I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit too critical of it. No one else really seemed to complain all that much. I mean, a few did. But I think it's time just to bring it current. Not that Bash really changes all that much, but just make it consistent at least. And I started mapping out all the videos that I want to go over, all the topics I want to cover, and I have it up to about 40 videos on my list right now that will be in the series. So I don't know if it's actually going to be 40, but uh, that's going to be kind of massive. So it's going to be a lot of work, but I think it's necessary. So that's what I'm doing in addition to that, I redid my Ansible config a bit. I know I keep talking about this. I need to share it. And I will, I promise, one of these days, I'm going to scrub it of all the password hashes or whatever's in there that shouldn't be in the public eye. But um, what I did that I thought was really cool is I basically configured it to download Firefox from Mozilla's FTP. So instead of apt install Firefox, it pulls the tarball and what I discovered is Ansible is smart enough to know that if it's already extracted the tarball to a directory and it and the new one or the, the one on the site hasn't changed, then it just won't do anything. But it'll also follow a redirect. So the URL never changes. It just downloads the latest Firefox tarball. Ansible will follow that link, download the tarball, compare it to the one I already have. And if it's different, it'll replace it. And if not, then, you know, it won't do anything. So why why would I want to go through all that extra work? And the question, that's probably a good question. And the reason is because, you know, maybe Canonical, Debian, or whoever your distro provider is, maybe they don't have the latest Firefox on release day. Sometimes it takes them a couple of days, and you're impatient like I am. And you want it today, (laughs) you know, you see the release announcement, new Firefox. I mean, let's face it, Mac OS and Windows users can just simply download it. They can just go to help about, and they can click on the update right then and there. Um, Linux users, we got to wait for the repositories to update. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to get it now. (laughs) So this is a way for me to do that. So That's cool. Whenever I make this public, then everyone will be able to see how I did that. It's pretty simple. It's just the on-archive module in Ansible. And for those that don't know, Ansible is a configuration management software utility where you can you can use it to provision machines and install applications and set up servers and things like that. I use it for my desktops because I like to have the same configuration on any machine, which is how I set up the Sorex Pro by simply running Ansible on it, and then everything is set up. 
And then in other news, last night I went to see Godzilla. Don't worry, won't give any spoilers. Um, I don't know how you can spoil a Godzilla movie anyway, because I think pretty much everybody knows how those work out. But it was a lot of fun. I know the critics are criticizing the actors and whatnot for not having the best acting or something like that. It's a Godzilla movie. If you want to see two or multiple monsters duking it out in a city, it's a great thing, and it was an awesome movie. So my kids and I went to see that last night, and it was a lot of fun. So That's cool. Very cool. You know, I, I, I do a lot of the same thing where I'm like, I don't get in like really analyze the movie much. I right. just go for the entertainment value. It's just I, you like, have to ask if you're entertained. And yeah. uh, I, I actually I spent way too much time on this because uh, Joe Rogan interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, and it was great listening to him. And mm-hmm. Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about why he doesn't tweet about movies anymore. And he says, no, no, I enjoy movies, but people thought I wasn't enjoying them because I would comment on the sky being wrong in a scene. Yeah. And he goes, but I'm enjoying the movie. He goes, I'm not critical of it. Matter of fact. I've had movie people reach out to me after some CMS I tweets and ask before they produce the movie what would be the correct sky to put in here and right. astronomical details uh, and space details. And he goes, so he's happy about it, but he's also said sometimes people think you're complaining. He goes, I'm not complaining. I still enjoyed the movie. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think there's certain expectations. You're seeing a Godzilla movie. You pretty much are going there to see monsters fighting in a city while things are getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. And it definitely delivered. And then if you see, like, Jurassic Park, you're seeing a movie like that because you like to see people running from dinosaurs. I mean, let's not overanalyze it. That's exactly what it is. But I know this isn't a Godzilla podcast, so the last thing I'll say, the level of detail in that movie, maybe I'm behind the times, was extremely good. Like, it's almost to the point where every brick of every building getting destroyed looked unique in some way. And Mm. it was fantastic. And the movie never slows down. It's just from the very first scene, it's just the action. It was just probably the most intense monster movie I've ever seen. So, And again, I might be behind the times, but it was awesome. So there is a uh, company in New Zealand called, uh, I think it's WetaFX, yeah, WetaFX.co.nz. Watch some of their, um, they call them sizzle reels, but they're like the show off what a VFX company can do. Mm -hmm. And You'll sometimes see things. They did the visual effects for, uh, what was that? Was it Lord of the Rings? I thought it was. Um, Umbrella Academy, else? Avengers Endgame. Um, which was also good. Which was also good. And then uh, the Battle Angel, that other one. Oh, the Battle Angel behind the scenes. Probably some mm. spoilers in there, but how they did the movie with a VR character was amazing. Like, mm. So the, the, they're stepping up the game massively when it comes to visual effects. You know, we have the actors because that still carries forward. Like the actor still has to be involved. So I remember when we, there was the fear that we put actors out of business with vectors, as they were calling them, mm-hmm. and that never happened. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it's a way to enhance things. Uh, in in the VR worlds, which is pretty cool. Okay, enough about some of the movies. Uh, It is summer movie season. Summer movie season. Yeah, there's a few of them out there. Uh, So I've been working a couple things, and I have a a video I recorded this morning. I'll really say going into some advanced customer that cared about security. So we did an advanced setup with them. They actually exist. uh, They exist. Well, you know, and they're in a compliance industry, so it it actually matters a lot that they do things securely. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the new guy cares. The previous people apparently didn't. They were opening up RDB to the world and using a little security through obscurity. Yeah, medical dev company, don't do that. Um, No. Yeah, they just put RDP on odd ports. So now they have a system 
that uh, is, and I did a whole video on exactly how to get this set up inside of PFSense. So it's PFSense plus OpenVPN plus free radius plus statically assigned IP addresses, addresses based on user and then creating per IP address rules on that user so that user only gets access to what they want and they actually use proper least privilege um, where the only thing that user has access to is a single port when they VPN in. So they VPN in and exclusively have single access to a single port on a single box. Mm. Um, so they wow. absolutely can't wander the network. Uh, they can't get, they, as a matter of fact, even the gateway is blocked. So they can't even try to use the gateway to get back out. They can only go to that port. That way, if there's a problem with their machine, and there's they're using Duo. So they have Duo once they do get to the RDP session. So now they've VPN in with OpenVPN, and then had to use Duo to access the because the one port they had access to was uh, 3389 because they want to remote into their Windows workstation. And the Windows workstations or Dev workstations do have security on them besides Duo, like policies and everything else. So they just want them to be able to remote in from home, but with every safeguard potentially there. So yeah. we're VPN, then we're Duoed, and then you're in. And you can't get into anyone else's box. And every every wow. dev has their own dedicated machine. So each one's mat, each username is matched to permissions to get into that machine. Hmm. That sounds cool. like my dream client, being able to work on something I where know. they actually care about security and you get hmm. to be creative and work on a solution that's actually pretty mm -hmm. neat. Now, uh, kind of related to that, I did a video because there's always the haters. And we have them. I like to respond to the haters. But then I don't want to respond as me, like as in I'm some guy saying that my video is correct or that, yes, PFSense is used in the commercial world. Why not show your work, as we were told as children in school? So I did a video on is PFSense and FreeNAS, uh, TrueNAS, and other related open source projects truly used in the enterprise environment. So I picked a couple companies people might have heard of, one of them being MasterCard. Ever heard of them? I Probably. Think so. What's in your wallet? Right. So that's Capital One. But yeah. yeah. Oh, that's Capital One. Oh, I thought yeah. it was Mastercard. I don't watch many commercials. Are, maybe they're Mastercard. Anyway. Anyways, um, the credit card company. Uh, I went on ZipRecruiter and uh, was looking for people who needed PF Sense experience. And then there's obviously a lot of demand for that. More specifically, there's demand though uh, on people at Mastercard is hiring people who know PF Sense. The only reason you hire someone that needs PFSense experience is because you must be running it in your stack. So I went and took several large companies and I went through their uh, hiring practices to say, one, I can tell you, because I've done consulting under NDAs, that there are large manufacturing companies using some of these open source tools inside their stack, but they do not talk about what's inside their stack. Part of the agreement of me consulting with them is like Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about what I'm consulting about. Yep. Uh, but you can you can do some metadata and go, hmm, Tom does a lot of PFSense and FreeNAS videos. Tom does consulting for big companies. I wonder what he consults with them about. Yep. <laughs> and the same thing when you go through, they might not publish on their uh, site, but when you go through ZipRecruiter or any of their hiring forums and when they're hiring for people with specifically that knowledge, it's not because they think it's nice to know. It's because they're using it. Um, and I've seen this, you know, in banks and everything else, these large projects. So it, it's kind of a good um, way to 
prove that open source, because I hate when people say it's not ready for prime time, it's not being used by these big companies, but uh, it really, really is. Hmm. But And I also cover some of the problems that you have proving it. Microsoft can tell me exactly, because they publish this in their shareholder reports, exactly how many licenses are sold for a Windows product. And said Windows products require activation frequently that phones home unless they're under a corporate environment one, but then it's even more documented because they, trust me, they know how many licenses they sold. I think so, yep. PF Sense can tell you that there's a lot of downloads. They don't know who's downloading it. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's uh, MasterCard. Somebody downloaded PF Sense. That's they can give you counts on mm-hmm. download. They mm-hmm. don't have install base. The systems do not phone home, so there's not a methodology by which they can give true accounting of the actual usage of open source. So whenever you say, "Well, there's six million installs of some Windows product," there's not. You don't know what the total market space is. You also don't know. If Palo Alto gives you how many firewalls are out there, but you don't know the overall firewall landscape, how many firewalls are in use, especially when you start lining up internal firewalls to protect and section off internal sections of networks. Cisco can give you sales numbers for, you know, a big companies. The open source companies can't. So you really don't know just how much is used in there, but we can tell you that it is used because we see is, yeah. see them hiring. And, and the fact that I've worked in these environments, but once again, people working in it, they and all these companies publish their stack. There's not a page that you can go to, MasterCard slash, what do we use inside of our office with a list of every piece of hardware software that they're using. Um, so I, I don't want to judge anyone, but I sometimes wonder if these people that have a lot of time invested in like Cisco certs and these these specific you know corp you know corporate technologies are just so scared that their skill set is going to be invalidated that they're just going to lash out is oh. when something else comes in and I just don't know if maybe some of the um, criticism stems from that or uh, yes they are terrified they are yeah. terrified of becoming irrelevant they are very vested in it um, both. Um, mentally, because they've spent so much time understanding the product and the sales tools for a product, they're invested in it from a monetary standpoint because they get sales commissions. Uh, being mm. in the channel partner program for Cisco, if you are a good channel partner, is lucrative. Your kickbacks and recurring revenue from selling a Cisco deal. Um, I have friends making over $180,000 a year, and most of their income is based on recurring revenue from Cisco. Matter of fact, I have mm. another friend uh, who bought a Lamborghini, and most of his money comes from his Meraki recurring revenue. Not really friends. I wonder what I know. they would recommend if uh, they were. Uh, they won't recommend yeah. anything besides that. They actually yeah. have their whole FUD, you know, talking points ready, aim, fire, because uh, they want anyone. Matter of fact, uh, when I was consulting with a school district, head of said school district, well, person who was supplying some of their technology previously because we were getting to go head-to-head on, in the boardroom, when I brought up using PFSense as a firewall, he looked right at me and was the most diminutive person and says, we don't have time for kids' toys. He goes, open source isn't really ready to handle a school. We sell Cisco here. That's all we use. Mm-hmm. And this was the school's problem. Wow. And I, I, um, I am not someone who can't resist being a smart-ass back. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I did retort back very quickly in front of the board superintendent. And this is at a, a meeting with lots of people. And I said, oh, can you give Google a call and let them know they're doing it wrong? Or some of these other billion-dollar companies <laughs> um, that use these mm-hmm. products like open-source tools. And by the way, I said, tell me how spending licensing fees on Cisco's educates children. I, I'm ready for you to explain that right here and now. 
and they said, "I want to see this." So, oh bad. man! And the guy was like, "Oh, I." He was staring daggers at me because in the challenge the school was actually having. Um, what brought this meeting on is we don't have the budget for the technology and to educate the kids and get them laptops. So how do we get this budget? I'd like to swap out your Cisco uh, firewalls with this. You're not using any of the features on them. That you're not using any of the filtering, any of those. Like literally, APF SenseBox would solve this problem immediately. And they also needed a VPN to the other uh, schools. And the VPN licenses that they were trying to buy were so expensive, mm-hmm. they couldn't afford it because they needed a new VPN concentrator, I think it's called. I'm not a Cisco guy. There was some box that was $10,000 they had to buy. And they're like, yeah, this is more 10000 than recurring license fees. And they, already this many recurring license fees. And I'm like, just rip it out and replace it with all this. And, uh, yeah, it just turned into like a whole... They still stayed with Cisco because of Yeah, I don't reasons. know. I'm more of a fan of um, saving money in school so that the kids can have books purchased for them, better computers, yeah. tools that they need to actually learn rather than having all that be absorbed into licensing fees. It just doesn't it, seem like a good idea to me. It is. It's uh, it's very expensive. Um, uh, City of Dearborn, because they were public about this, they did get rid of Cisco for that reason. Uh, they got into a fight with them. And it was mm-hmm. Cisco wanted to rake them over the coals over some licensing fees, and that's what uh, started really – that was like the last straw for them uh, because they had some – they were trying to transition to new Cisco. Some of the old Cisco stuff had problems. And they go, hey, uh, before we get this transition um, – we need to get this solved. And Cisco's like, hey, you got to buy a license to that to get that update to get to this. They should just, in the education market, just give it away. You'd think. You, you know, it's the best thing to do to, to empower people but, to learn. But they want to yeah. do that way. They're going to be the one right. on the losing end. So. <clears throat> yeah. But that's some of the stuff I've been working on besides all the other things I post on my YouTube channel. But that's the big ones is some of the uh, PFSense and Free Radius. And, yes, this stuff is used in the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it is. Definitely is. All right. Moving on to, do we have any listener feedback? Yes, we actually had a couple people. Couple. I don't know if this was before or after our last recording, but um, Brad sent us an email with the subject "Get off my lawn," which, of course, I had to read that one. And Phil actually responded. I didn't even get a chance to. I think it probably stemmed from he mentioned Red Hat Seven Point Two. I think that's when I mentioned that. That's what I started with. I don't know. Uh, if any of us have started around that same time, and may have also mentioned Red Hat 7.2. But um, Brad um, mentions, he says, I downloaded 50 disks of Slackware <laughs> 2.2.0.1, and he remembers it all the way down to the final point, um, with kernel 1.2.3, installed on a 386DX40, and ran with it until Red Hat 3.03 came out, dual-booted, sharing Windows 95, Slackware and Red Hat, and he goes on to talk about you know where he's been and interesting conversation happened you know Phil um, and Brad. So it's always good to hear from somebody who has been using Linux longer than me because I will admit you know Red Hat seven point two certainly isn't the oldest, but um, it's interesting to hear from people that have used it before me because the ecosystem was so much different and very different. To hear I, how that was, it's just fascinating. Linux has gotten so much easier to use. Like everything about it, and I think that's actually when you see some of these uh, older technicians that are using Windows. Oh man, I remember all those problems I had with the X driver and the mouse driver, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember 2000, the year 2000 as well. Things were a lot different. Um, <laughs> Twenty years I later, I remember <laughs> my happy moments with Linux when I first started was any time that I installed the proprietary NVIDIA driver without it bricking my entire installation and having to reinstall everything. And I don't even remember 
what it was about that that would brick my Red Hat install, and I would literally have to do it over. It was either my inexperience because I was just starting out, or it just literally was an involved process. I don't quite remember. But I would always, you know, you get the NVIDIA driver working, you run GLX gears, make sure it's, you know, got a decent frame rate. It's not a, you know, tool to judge frame rates, but you just make sure your hardware acceleration is working. And um, then the challenge was getting MP3s to play, which, you know, that's a thing. And before all that, networking didn't even work out of the box anyway. That had to be manually configured. So before you can even download the NVIDIA driver to see whether or not it was bricked and you had to reinstall it after, you had to get networking going. So So it's quite a process. Every aspect has improved so dramatically. So it's been pretty... It really has. Um, Show format. I think we can talk about this here. Mm -hmm. And. I think there's some he's, – he makes really good points here about that he misses some of the music and the bumps that we had in between. Mm-hmm. And we've gone back and forth about it because, one, we need to re-edit them, and we all are really busy doing stuff. And then it was always the trouble of setting them up and doing them when we did them. There's always, like, these little quirks about it. Um, and I'm of both minds on this. So I agree. I kind of like the professional polish sometimes. But then again, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And some uh, – I listen to, like, the – uh, Darknet Diaries, amazing level of editing, background, ambient mm-hmm. music, the storytelling and everything else, the splicing in, amazing. Sounds very professional. But I also listen to a couple of our podcasts that are just a couple of people talking, and I'm it's equally happy uh, mm. for that. Matter of yeah. fact, one of my favorite ones is the Anthrosapine Reviewed by John Green because John Green just has amazing content. Whatever he's saying, you don't have to edit. I can You can just set a recorder in front of John Green. I'll listen to him. <laughs> like He just has really yeah. compelling, engaging things to say. Um, so we've been of two minds on this. Like I don't I don't know how much it helps, but I get it from the perspective of him um, uh, being an older listener that he's used to that more professional radio polish uh, that we had because that's yeah. how it always was in the radio uh, world. And I've been on um, – it's a different production when I've, I've been on the Internet uh, Advisor, which is an actual radio show on WWJ Radio, right. and I've been on that several times. And it's very different how they do things because there's all, all of us have timers in front of us. There's time slots. There's times how long before we go to commercial because their commercials are – on fixed times they occur whether you're done talking or not so you have to wrap it up there's these little blinky things that come at you and little buttons like it i want to like show how it's different it's not like we yeah. just we just kind of sit down and start bsing in front of the mics right <laughs> so my opinion is i think that there's a lot of validity to that i think subconsciously whether we admit it or not maybe not everybody but if you hear certain things in a product like an audio recording or a video, see certain things in a video recording, it kind of gives you a comfort level that, oh, these guys are putting a lot of effort into it. Or maybe you don't even think about it, but you just gravitate towards things that seem professional, even when at the end of the day, the professionalism of the bumpers or things, that that doesn't really matter. As long as you can hear the people talk, you're interested in what they're saying, that's really all that matters. But my opinion is I think audio bumps and whatnot is a good thing i think and i feel like i recommend that but also less is more because you know i love the twit network for example yes yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to security now it's one of my favorite podcasts but it feels like 50 seconds or more of just leo talking at the very beginning before they actually get steve on and then they start yeah getting into it that's too much i think that's way too much i mean a few seconds of transitionary audio in between segments and i feel makes a better presentation but if it gets to the point where 
people are able to hit the um, fast forward button and skip it. The very fact that they had time to do that to me means that that bumper is too long. Well, so less is more. You look at the Twit network. So I listened to their Google one and I listened to Security Now, and both of those you have a long intro for Security Now, but there's that's it, and there's an outro. Then you have the mm. uh, what do you call it? The one for the Google, and it has a series of bumps because they have the little trumpets they play for the Google change log. So they have this whole. They do have it in segments a little bit differently that they do have a sound bump for, and it varies because in the Twiat one, they have no sound bumps. Uh, mm. They just have a really short intro, and they jump right into their enterprise tech when there's no sound bumps at all throughout the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. So I'm going to say the majority of ones are those who don't have them, but, you know, I I, think, it varies yeah. a lot. Maybe I think maybe what we should do is just get everybody together off camera and just kind of just chat about it and just see what, you know, what we feel, how do we feel you know, is the best way forward, what makes the most sense. And, I mean, it's really hard because we all have um, busy professional yeah. lives. Some bumps make nice delimiters that yeah. let us know. I think there's value in, in that, and I, I personally think that would be a great idea. But, of course, more feedback from our listeners would probably help us to make a informed decision on that. So, um, you know, I know we, we've opened this up for feedback in the past, but maybe one more time just – Get a few more emails in, just see what you guys have to say about it. And then um, when our schedules allow for it, maybe we'll just sit down and kind of just chat about it. Maybe we won't do anything, maybe leave it the way it is, or maybe decide to do something, um, you know, who knows. Yeah. You know, in my experience listening to a bunch of different podcasts, is that the ones I notice that I like are more just the intro and the outro, at the, you know, at the very beginning, right. very yeah. end. Um, and there's... Only, there's been very few that actually do like bumper sounds and uh it always seemed to be uh labored you know belabored you know that it's it yeah. was just more than what needed to be so i um, agree with that so yeah. maybe we'll we'll um i'll work on uh some ideas for music intro outro so we have a beginning end. Yeah. Um, I, I like our end i just got to get the i, I think or the, if we want to crowdsource uh, a yeah. new song for us yeah, I agree. Awesome. And I, some, we had some listeners that wanted to put something together. Yeah. Another thought hey, I had, too, is the intro, I think, the one benefit to having an intro is it's not just someone's talking abruptly. You know, it's just kind of like yeah. gradually just, mm-hmm. okay, it's getting started. You can adjust um, your volume, and then it, then the person starts talking. I'll throw this out there. If someone hears this, and someone can uh, do a space, the final frontier, but instead of space, like Linux, the final frontier. These are the ventures of open source. Oh, my like, God. You just solved all of our problems <laughs> in one I, shot. Because that's what right I started writing there. this you know, morning. Yeah, that's funny. That is amazing. I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I wouldn't want our names in it. Just the, the Sunday Morning Links Review takes you on an adventure of, you know, and um, I might. Because yeah, we may announce try, our names anyway. So Yeah, and we'll announce our names for each show. That way we know who's on the show because um, – that changes sometimes, like Phil's not here today, so that way we just have the same intro about what the show's about, and and that's it's short, keep it under 20 seconds, and then um, I can, I'm just going to redo our end, I like our end uh, quite a bit, so I, I don't think mm-hmm. that needs to be changed, just got to get the phone number out of it, so I'm just going to re-record um, the end bump, and we'll go from there. Cool. And I'll get, I'll send you guys for approval, and we'll have it into the next show. Yeah. There you go. There but if go. someone... All right. Yeah. If someone has a script for the space final, I'll, I'll do my version of it that I was working on this morning before you guys got here, and I was, I was literally working on it. So because that was my Sweet. idea. Well, that'd be yeah. a lot of fun. But okay. I'm pitching it right now, like live, well, live <laughs> to right. us. Post, I think post that's to you cool. guys. Okay. Yeah, I like it. That's awesome. We're all Star Trek nerds, right? 
Yeah. Yes, okay. absolutely, no question. Oh, not I know we're off the movie talk a bit, but they did the DS9 documentary. Go see it. That's all. Mm. It is great. I loved it because DS9 is the. My favorite series, and I'm need to doing rewatch this. that. Is that on, that on streaming these days? It is, it is, and I'm saying it so you can send all the hate mail and address it to me. Show at smr.us mm-hmm. of why you think I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I could, well, not to get on the Star Trek uh, tandem here, but um, last thing I'll say, and this is really going to generate hate mail. I really enjoyed Star Trek Enterprise, so send okay. your hate mail to me, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I will gladly accept that. But yep, actually, I love them all so. Yeah, I'm a fan of all of them. So, all right. I think that's all the listener feedback we have. But I expect with those Star Trek comments, we're going to get more. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Unless right. you guys seen, you didn't see anything else. You didn't miss anything. No, right? I didn't see anything else. Nope. So, moving on to distros. Uh, yes. BSD. Look at this. 11.3. Beta. So more BSD goodness. Mary's not here to talk about that, so I'll bring it up. Maybe we should see if she can review it for us if she's open and has the time. It's a new release, so she's probably already running it. Yeah, the uh, looks like they did some file system changes. Uh, an updated FSCK and DirCheck functions have been rewritten uh, for clarity and correctness, and Zlib has been moved to syscontrib Zlib so it can be used in the kernel. Uh, I know there were some changes with the Beehive system. They're supposed to be getting uh, more enhancements because I know this is going to flow over to the FreeNAS world. People have asked me to do a video on it, and I think Tony's the only one who's done much testing with that I even know of at all uh, with the Beehive um, system in yeah. FreeNAS. Yeah, I did it for a while, and, and it seemed to work pretty good. Uh, there, I mean, the reason I, I was running it is because I had a, an existing running you know VM that I wanted to have running in FreeNAS. And... Um, so there's no import or export. You have to like take an image of the system and then re-image it back into the Beehive. Um, but other than that, it ran pretty good. Um, and then I, for for reasons that my system was crashing on me and dying, that it actually corrupted all my VMs. Oh. So uh. then I had to just rebuild. And when I was rebuilding, I just said do it in uh, jails this time. Jails are going to be the most efficient way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um the one thing I was kind of curious about is, like, how does Beehive's hard drive performance? Because one thing you lose a lot with uh, VMware, Zen Server, any of those, the extraction layer for the hard drive, definitely, uh, you take a hit. You're just not getting that same raw speed performance. And if you're IO-intensive, database applications and things like that, they work better in a container or jail system um, right. because they get faster direct kernel access to the um Hard drive. So that's. I would say, from in my experience, it wasn't any faster than, or wasn't any slower than than jails. I mean, okay. I, I didn't do any extensive testing, um, and I I noticed network performance was pretty good uh, between VMs. I was getting um, uh, what was it, three gig connection between VMs, mm. like uh, so you know it's faster than than my switch I had. So yeah, the. Uh... Uh, I did some testing on that a while ago with Zen Server, and it's really interesting. So Zen Server used to peak out at 16 gigs, and I believe that's the same thing that VMware does. So inner VM transfers go at 16 gig over the network. Since the latest version, and I haven't emailed the developers about this, it seems to be locked in at 12 now. I don't mm-hmm. know where the other four gigs went because no hardware changes. I just updated to a new version, uh, and I was goofing around testing something over my network. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, it's now 12. 
not that 12 slow, um, but it's interesting that it's 12 now. Yeah. Because I'm getting ready to do a whole virtual labs build. Um, because I well I did a whole tour of how our virtual lab is, and I'm going to go. I went through the setup overall, but I'm going to make like a concise video, so it's a single video of how to build uh, virtual network labs, where you build networks and switches and everything all virtually, and then route between them with all the virtual machines, hmm. including oh, PF Sense virtualized for it. So yeah, that's that's, like, I, that's how I do all my videos is with a virtualized install of PF Sense, and I put machines behind it on separate networks, and then I put machines in front of it, and I've even VPN two PF Senses all in the same virtual infrastructure so two pf senses machines on each side of them anyways back to distros yep mx linux 18.3 it's just a point release but i'll take the opportunity to mention it because it's one of my favorite distributions it's essentially debian 9 with some extra things put into it to make it more user friendly because debian can be a pain to beginners because it doesn't always have the drivers you know basically on the iso but MX Linux is a great distro anyway. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of customization. So I'm glad to see it's getting the attention that it's getting, even though this is just simply a minor point release. So if you already have MX Linux loaded, you only simply need to run your updates. You don't have to reinstall anything. But it's uh, it's running the XFCE desktop, and it's, it's very custom. It gives you a lot of options. So if you're looking for something to test out, I would recommend it. The only time I wouldn't recommend it is if you're if you have like a very brand new computer like the latest chipset it's debian so the drivers do kind of still lag behind a little bit but that shouldn't be a problem unless you have like a bleeding edge machine and i'm sure they'll probably have a new version as soon as debian 10 comes out that'll take advantage of that so that probably shouldn't be an issue for much longer but it's a great distro and a new version of tails uh, i I've, I've always liked tails it's definitely pretty slick um it's the Amnesic Incognito Live system that allows you to browse uh, Tor sites. And one of the things, if you are doing security research or you want to be completely, or is best effort, I should say, not completely, a, completes a wrong term, mm-hmm. anonymous online, Tails is probably your best bet for it. Um, There's recently someone who did some deciphering of how Chrome can betray you. And at first I'm like, why are they using Chrome with Tor? But um, someone did. And mm-hmm. then, because a lot of people, and I get it, use proxy chains. So you can look at something from a different perspective, like from an outside in and use our proxy chains. But they showed even how proxy chains, um, Chrome can leak certain information about you. Mm-hmm. And But this, there's a website if you look at for what every browser knows about you. And it's because you're logged into a bunch of things there's a lot of information that can be gathered right. on you. When you boot up off a separate tail system, you have now separated from your usual computer. So turning yeah. my computer into anonymous surf mode is cool, but because uh, I'm using Parrot OS and it has that option and spins up Tor and wraps everything in a Tor, but <laughs> you're, I still log into the same places. You're like, hey, look, he's Tom, but he's on a Tor node. <laughs> so it doesn't, because right. <laughs> he's logged into all those same things again. So this is nice because it runs on a USB, it gets destroyed each time, and built each time you boot it up. So I'm really big fan of that. Gparted, Gparted Live, 1.0.0-1. Uh, so yeah, that's a new one. I don't think of it as a distro, but you're right. Yeah, it, it does it, boot. It is. It is a distro. <laughs> a I think live bootable. Yeah. I, I I see distros as, you know, for a particular purpose. Some are for your general use on your laptop desktop. Some are for a very specific use. Like in this case, Gparted is awesome because it's just one of those tools I always make sure I have in my um, mm-hmm. toolbox, so to speak. I have a, uh, a little case of USB flash drives, and anytime 
I get a chance, I try to make sure they're all at least recently updated. I think it's important. I mean, obviously, GPART is not something you're going to use every day unless you're in the market of uh, computer hardware distribution or something like that. But it's good to have on hand in case you ever need to uh, repartition or something like that. It's just one of the ones that I always uh, make sure I keep updated at least once a year. I'll re, I'll basically reflash a thumb drive with it, with the latest version. So uh, I'm glad to see that project is still going, even though, to be fair, you, you have G-parted on pretty much every Linux live image nowadays, but it's good to have. Yeah, when you need something that just boots quickly and yep. that's all you need to do is a little bit of hard drive editing, that's nice. Do one thing and do one thing well. That's yeah. what it does. Cool. And then one other thing I saw on here, I didn't get a chance. I don't know if we mentioned this in the last recording or not, but OpenSUSE 15.1. Have you guys used it, OpenSUSE at all recently? No, I haven't. I, I can't remember the last time I've touched it. I haven't either. And it's been twenty years. <laughs> it's been a, well. It's probably been several for me. So I'm I'm kind of wondering if I should check this out. Um, OpenSUSE is certainly not the most popular distro nowadays, but it certainly has a very dedicated following. So it might be something that would be worth a shot. So um, that they released fifteen point one on the twenty second of May. So that's available for those of you that are using OpenSUSE. You can upgrade or. Do a fresh install. Maybe I'll check that out if I get a minute. I think it'd be fun to check it out after you know a very long time of not having used it. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right, now we got some news topics to talk about because some stuff happened. Some stuff happened. Some stuff happened. Um, who wants to start? I can start. So I have a number of things here, and I also had a, a, a little mini discussion I wanted to start on account of one of the news items, which I'll save for last. But um, one of them is actually is two articles, but they're both related, and they both happened within 24 hours of each other on Pharonix, where uh, the first headline was, Linux 5.1 hit by a data loss bug due to overly aggressive FS trim. So Ooh. basically, DMCrypt, so if you're using LVM, DMCrypt, and Samsung solid-state drives, um, according to Phronix, the combination in some manners may lead to data corruption if you're also using the 5.1 kernel. And it's a small little article uh, talking about what that actually means, but then less than 24 hours later on the same site, and of course my browser just had to freeze on me, and I, okay, no, there it is. Okay, so basically less than 24 hours later, I, the headline also on Phronix reads, Linux 5.1.5 kernel fixes the latest data corruption bug. So it was patched uh, pretty quickly. So if you're running 5.1 and you do use that combination of technologies, you probably want to be on 5.1.5, which is the version that apparently has that fix. It doesn't really impact me, but um, actually it might because I am using encryption and Samsung. So... Uh, but I'm not using kernel 5.1. But if you are, then you want to be on that version. In addition to that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, System76 is making progress on open source firmware for their laptops. So basically, they're beginning to work on core boot support for their products. And an article on Pharonix, which is actually just pulling from the System76 blog, where they talk about multiple things, not just core boot, they're talking about some of the challenges that they have left to get full core boot support. Core boot is a replacement firmware for laptops and desktops. 
and they're running into some problems with Thunderbolt. Uh, sometimes it's not in a functional state after suspend and resume, so they're working on that. And they're working on the bio setup menu to design that. They want to, I guess, it sounds like do a custom theme for it. So I'm glad to see that they're wanting to make use of this core boot. I was actually kind of wondering why they haven't done that before, and here's why, because they have some challenges. But they're working through it, and um, if they can get those things figured out, then maybe their next products will have core boot by default. So I, I'm uh, old school, and <laughs> I hated the AMI BIOS when they added mouse support. I was oh, actually... Yeah. Like, I liked old-school BIOSes, and I hate on my Asus Republica Gamer high-end uh, motherboard that there's mouse support in it, and it's a pain, and there's a lot of menus. Like, I could, you could blindfold me back in the early 2000s and late 90s, I, and I could walk you through the BIOS setup and just because I knew how many key presses each little menu was right. um, when I set up systems. I miss those days, and that's one thing I will rant. I don't want too much fanciness in my BIOS. Don't I don't need a theme. Yeah. I, need to, I need to choose the boot order. I need to set the processor. I need to turn on virtualization if it's turned off by default. Then I want to save an exit with one button and then go on about my OS load right. where I can have yeah. a fancy I, theme I totally and GUI. Agree. I'm just, like, I think it, for them it's more or less a matter of open source BIOS. Yeah, and I and agree I with that part completely. The selling point for them would be that that would set them more apart from others that you know, re- resell or remanufacture um, laptops. I mean, they do more. A lot of people will complain. They're just Clevo with a uh, you know, fancy sticker oh, yeah, yeah. on it, but they do so much more than that, mm-hmm. and I think this will further set them apart, Yes, which I think is a good thing. And this also might possibly get more people um, interested in their platform because, you know, you have Purism, for example, that uh, are trying to get a fully um, free uh, laptop. I'm not saying System76 would accomplish that, but this certainly would would, uh, maybe make them um, a target for people that are more along that mindset. So um, going back to the Linux kernel, uh, there's a fix pending for borked hibernation after disabling hyperthreading. So why would you disable hyperthreading? Well, the zombie load vulnerability that has been making it the rounds certainly makes it more enticing. Now, with Spectre Meltdown, you know, I kind of thought about disabling hyperthreading, and then I'm thinking, do I really want to minimize my performance? And then with zombie load, from my understanding, in some ways it's kind of worse because they're, the the patches won't fix it. I mean, it might help, but some of the patches actually require that um, hyperthreading be disabled. I'm kind of wondering at this point, should I disable it? I know Phil, uh, if he were here, would probably say, yes, do it. But I don't know how much of a performance impact that would actually have. Um, It it may. Yeah, I would think it would. But then there's some articles that are trying to make the claim that it isn't as bad as you would think to the point where BSD is now considering... um, disabling that well, by default. One of the points I had, and I did a video specifically about this to address it, is the fact that it's low low amount of data gets leaked. So they loaded up a zombie load. They talk about it taking 24 hours on the new Core i9. That means for every slower processor, it takes longer. Also, this is a lab environment. We mm-hmm. want to see it. And I haven't really had time to, I wanted to poke at the, uh, with the proof of concept that they released. But what I understand from talking to people is it's just, yeah, we'll get one character every couple hours on an i9 ping, peaked out. What's going to run on my computer that I'm going to not notice peaking out my processor? Right. Also, what did I load on my computer besides the proof of concept that tries to extract data? I thought about trying it specifically on like my Intel i5, which is a low-powered 
old i5, so it's struggling. So I'm not thinking it's as bad. I mean, it's bad because they can do it, but right. what's the real world? What does it look like in a real world? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can pick my lock, but it takes this much complexity and they have to stand at my door for the next seven days to get the lock picked with this tool. You're like, well, I'll notice them. Yeah, you probably would. Doesn't, yeah. I mean, granted, it's an edge case and attacks always get better, not worse. So someone may find some magical improvement that, but what are you running on your computer? Is there some JavaScript that's going to run right. that has enough unfederated access for enough time to extract some real data out of your computer. I totally agree with you. And I'm not, a, I'm not at the point yet where I'm going to disable hyperthreading, but you never know. Um, it could possibly get to that point. And this article on Pharonics, which will be in the show notes, is uh, mentioning that there is a Linux kernel bug, apparently, when you disable hyperthreading and then you hibernate your system and then you resume it, it'll reboot possibly possibly reboot the system Whoops. instead of resume it. So you'll lose what you're working on. So they're working on a fix, and they're saying that that fix will be backported through to Linux 4.19. So um, that's coming. And also, another thing that I thought was interesting, this goes back to our earlier discussion where we were talking about how hard things were back in the day, there is a little edge case that can be a little challenging for new users, and that's proprietary graphics, which can sometimes be an issue. If you're running NVIDIA, for example, you have to manually install a proprietary driver if you want to run high-end games. I find the Nuvo drivers fine if you're not running games, but if you're running games, you need the proprietary driver. So apparently Ubuntu 19.10 will include the proprietary NVIDIA drivers on the ISO. I see that. Now, before you get too exciting or excited about that, we don't know exactly what that means because the verbiage of the article almost leads me to believe, yes, they're on the ISO, meaning you wouldn't need an Internet connection to install them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be an option in the installer. Now, I hope it will be because, you know, it, it's great to have them on the ISO, but generally speaking, people expected that to work out of the box. If you're more of a if you're more a Richard Stallman fan, you're gonna hate the fact that they're on the ISO. And you know, that's certainly um, a valid concern, but at the same time, end users generally don't care. They just want their games to work and they don't care how or how it yeah. works or why it works so long as it works. I think uh, if they're going to do it in the live C D mm-hmm. that it needs to be installed when you install it. I, I ran agree. into that with Broadcom Wireless. I mean this was five years ago mm-hmm. but it would i put the live cd in and wireless worked great and then i would install it and reboot and then wireless wouldn't work again and it's right. because oh no you have to install the the broadcom right uh, thing and it was like it was a pain to find out what folder was on the cd i agree and they said in this article that the nuvo driver will still be the default so I'm going to just follow this and see how it works out. I mean, Ubuntu 19.10 is still in development, so we'll, we'll see how it works. I think the best solution that I think works for the most people is um, it's already the case now when you install Ubuntu, there's a checkbox, install proprietary drivers for whatever. Mm-hmm. Nice option, you know, codecs, wireless drivers. I think that they could just simply make the Nuvo driver the default if you don't check that box. But if you do check that box and you have an NVIDIA card, then just give them the NVIDIA driver because they've already chosen by checking that box that they really don't care if it's proprietary um, elements on their machine or not. So if they don't care, just give them the NVIDIA driver and give them a better experience. But maybe that's exactly what they'll do. I'll follow this and see, but I think it's a step forward in the right direction. 
because people want their games to work. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would love the Nuvo driver to be so great that it is indistinguishable from proprietary, but that's just not the case today. And the final article on my list, I wanted to have a little mini discussion, get your thoughts on this, because um, the Antergos distribution is going to be discontinued. So this was one of my favorite distributions because, I mean, we have Manjaro, which is a rolling release distribution based on Arch. Antergos is also a rolling distro based on Arch. It effectively is Arch with an installer, but it's different enough that it's considered its own distribution, has its own repositories and things that are different. But it makes installing Arch approachable by the average user. So I feel like it's a major shame that this is going away. The developers are basically just you know moving along and no longer going to be supporting this. We have Manjaro for people that want a rolling Arch distro, but Manjaro is bloated. I mean, I love it. It's great. But when you install Manjaro, GNOME, for example, it's so customized that GNOME is almost indistinguishable as GNOME. It looks like a completely different desktop environment. Plus, you get a bunch of Microsoft Office applications pre-installed, all these things that you didn't really ask for. It would be great if you could just choose these optionally. You can easily remove them after the fact. But I think what I'm saying is there's a market for Antergos because it's you know not as bloated. Yes, you get some things by default, but you don't get so much that it just makes it a completely different experience. So I think that there's still a market for this. And I'm not surprised to see that it's going away because I've noticed that it um, the quality lately has not been great. Like it's always been great in the past, but then I did a review on it, probably one of the first ones I've done in this studio actually. And when I did the review, I, I had no problems. It's great. And I remember it from years back being great. But then the day after I published that review, Someone in the comments noticed, yeah, it doesn't install. I'm like, what do you mean? It, it installed for me. And, the, and they noticed that if you choose in the new version that just came out, because it's rolling, you choose Grub as your bootloader, it doesn't boot. You go through an hour-long install, installing all these ah. packages, you choose Grub as your bootloader, you go to reboot, doesn't boot, start the install over, so you, so you choose System D boot instead. Now it works. So then I started noticing this mixed quality, and then, unfortunately, they're going away. And I feel like it brings up a bigger discussion about these distributions that are not, you know, from big companies. They, they don't have a huge development team. One, number one, do you trust them because of security? Are they keeping up on that? And number two, who's to say that this distribution that you think is the greatest thing ever it has a small development team. It's just going to go away one day, and now you're going to be stuck um, trying to find a, a new home. Yeah, I. You know what though? If if the quality is going down, if you can't maintain the quality, it's one of those distros that probably needs to go down too. I'm sorry, right. but if they can't maintain it, it it's one of those problems of if there's a low quality product that a lot of people are trying to make popular, it can give some people the wrong impression and go, "Wow, I really like that distro. It looks like the one I want to use." Oh, wow! This I hate Linux. Uh, this yeah, is awful. That's even um, worse. So I, you know, I'm not. If you can't maintain it, I guess it's it's better to step down than than to poorly maintain it. How's that? I totally agree I, with you. I think from my standpoint, it, it's just sad to see it go. Like if it wasn't the case that it was. Poorly yeah. maintained toward the end. I think the market that it tries to hit and appeal to is a market that really needs to have some um, some presence. 
and there, yeah, yeah, there are some efforts to fork it and to move forward. Did okay. you see that there's a, a forum or a discussion about uh, the new distro based on it, and hmm. um, they're uh, they haven't even given it a name yet. It's like a code name. Um, oh, I haven't seen this. Is this is interesting. Yeah. And while while you're looking that up, I one one. Um, hesitation I have with that is, I mean, look at what happened with Unity, you know, Ubuntu switched to GNOME, and people that enjoy the Unity desktop, several people said, okay, I'm going to fork it. How did that work out? Well, they did fork it, but then it, it lost steam, and then it just died, and then nobody ever hears about it anymore. So um, I hope they do fork it, and I hope they do appeal to that audience. And I hope that also when they see how hard it is to maintain a distribution, that they're ready for that and they have the necessary resources to keep it going. Because anybody, I could tell, I could say right now, I'm going to fork a distribution. Anybody can say it, but to do it is another issue altogether. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm sad to see it go, like I mentioned, but you know, I do agree with you, Tom. That if the if they're not, if your heart's not into it. Yeah. then it, it's better just to kind of let it go. Now, one thing they are doing that I think is great is they're going to be releasing an update that will uninstall the Antergo-specific packages and utilities from your system, effectively making it an Arch Linux install. I think why that's important is because if you have custom things in a distribution that aren't maintained, you then have security vulnerabilities because now you have unpatched code on top of a distribution. That, so if they're going to uh, release an update that's going to remove all that from your system, I think that's a good way to do it because most distributions, they don't even go that far. They'll just say, yep, sorry about your bad day, but we're not going to be doing this anymore, so figure it out. Uh, even if, I don't know how thorough they're going to be, but by the sounds of it, they're going to try their best to get all that custom stuff off your machine and then from there, your updates will come only from Arch, which is probably the way it should be anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Very good. And um, other than that, um, that's all for me. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Uh, I heard on one of the other po podcasts we're talking about it. It's like Defiant or something like that is what it was going to be. But that's like code name, so that the community can come together and, mm. and uh, do it. But A banner to... Yeah, come together under. So my question to you guys is, if you didn't, if you're in the market looking for a distribution, you just want to change, what are some of the factors that would be important to you to consider before you would actually say, yeah, I'm going to go with that distro? You know, that fit and polish is what keeps me on Pop! OS on my main desktop. Mm -hmm. And then I started running and love so far Parrot security because I've been doing more of the hacking and pen testing stuff. Uh, on my laptop and Parrot has been absolutely like for example like the Metasploit framework the OpenVAS they've integrated all those into their updates so I don't have to like update separate packages mm -hmm. they you know I can load those packages on Pop! OS but they're very tightly integrated into the o excuse me uh, into the OS here on Parrot so I, I like that tight integration if there's a package um, I love when I can just load and everything, you know, works smoothly. Like when I did the KDE on and it got all the latest updates for, um, like, the Caden Live. But, you know, adding the PPA uh, for Caden Live on my Pop! OS gives me all the latest versions and latest features and less crashy versions of Caden Live. <laughs> less, keyword, less crashy. Less, less crashy versions of it. You didn't say stable. You said I, less crashy. It works pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll just uh, we'll go ranting on that. So those are a couple of things I look at is that fit and polish of uh, the desktop makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. 
Pop! OS really does a nice job. Uh, having my something as minor as both having notifications from things like my uh, G Suite calendar pop up in Pop! OS and having a Do Not Disturb button when I just don't want any notifications because I'm recording a video. Those are features that I know can be added onto GNOME but aren't turned on by default, but they are added on in Pop! OS. It's so minor but so uh, useful. What about you, Tony? I'm looking for stability. That's, That's huge. Really, yep. like my big thing: is stability and, uh, and availability of, of software. You know, now with uh, app image and you know uh, that kind of thing set up, it makes it much easier to run it on just about any Linux distro. App image is but, what I've been using too. Um, but yeah, I think uh, stability and uh, just easy use, I guess. I think I, I agree with all those points. I, one of the things that is important to me is if they go the extra mile because it's it's easier to just simply check the box and walk away, which I feel Ubuntu, that's kind of what they do. They I feel like Ubuntu is a good distribution, and, and I actually do like it quite a bit. But they just simply check the box. Yeah. They give you a desktop. It works. It's stable. They give you a custom theme so it doesn't look like garbage, but then that's it. And they give you an idea that, it's news that they're thinking about putting the proprietary driver on their ISO. It's not news anytime Pop! OS does something like that or they give you a newer NVIDIA driver or they tune something for desktop because it's expected of them that they're going to do that because they always go to, go the extra mile. So for me, I was kind of nervous at first with Pop! OS, you know, smaller development team, you know, are they going to keep up with this? But they, I think they've proven themselves so yeah, far. Yeah, they've done a great job. Yeah, and they go the extra mile constantly They because it gives you the impression that the desktop is important to them. They care about this. They want it to work. They care about the user experience. So I would say everything you guys mentioned plus uh, user experience and going the extra mile is important to me as well. Yeah. So. it's. Uh, I found it's called Endeavor. 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 Defiance, because you were thinking about Star Trek and DS9. Defiant was a ship of That's DS9. Be it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Do you have anything, Tony? Or? I do not have anything today. Oh, no problem. We'll, we'll burn through. I have a list, but um, we'll burn through this. Because <laughs> for the namesake of the show, we have the Hidden Wasp. So I don't know how you say it, but Entezer. I think I-N-T-E-Z-E-R is a research uh, technology place. They have a whole blog post, and they've done some research and uh, reverse engineered the hidden WASP targeting Linux system. Uh, so this is interesting. So unlike common Linux malware, hidden WASP is not focused on crypto mining or DDoS activity. It is a Trojan purely used for targeted remote control. Evidence shows in high probability that the malware was used in targeted attacks for victims who were already under attacker's control that have gone through heavy reconnaissance. Hidden WASP, Hidden Wasp authors have adopted a large amount of code from various publicly available open source uh, projects such as Mirai, uh, the uh, Azazel uh, toolkit. In addition, there are some similarities between this malware and other uh, Chinese malware families. However, attribution is made with low confidence. Now, this is basically if your machine's already been taken over and they have access to it. This is a whole remote access, runs quiet, uh, command and control. They have, you know, how to identify it, all the things they know about it. Really, I mean, this is a really mm -hmm. long reverse engineering post. I'm not going to go through all the details, but you should if you're interested in, one, how they found it, how they uh, 
pick through all of it. And as of uh, the writing of this, there is no detection. Uh, there is no system by which you can scan, not any of the antivirus companies. If you try to take that file, upload it, have it identified or flagged so it doesn't uh, come through. It has an entire update module and everything to it. So even if they did flag it, it, it does have uh, updating. But there is ways you can detect if it's on your system because uh, so far it does consistently run as the user SFTP and it does add that user to your uh Etsy shadow. So you can go through the Etsy password and uh, see if it's in there, see if that user's been added. So there is a detection method and it's not an attack method. This is a targeted attack. So you've already, you've already not patched your system and gotten pwned. And this is what they like, okay, we pwned you. Now what, you know, you forgot to update Confluence. You're running it as root. Thank you very much for giving me access to your server. And here you go. This is what we're going to use to control. So this is a tool, not the attack vector. Still really interesting. It's in-depth. It's quite advanced. That's what uh, makes it really big deal. Um, all of the current versions of Docker have a vulnerability that can allow attacker to get read-write access to any path on the host server. The weakness is a result of a race condition in the Docker software. While there is a fix in works, it is not yet integrated. And thanks to a wonderful Michigan-based company. Well, I, do we call them Michigan-based anymore since Duo got bought by Cisco? Mm-hmm. Anyways. Once Michigan-based, maybe still, the, the owner's the awesome person who supported a lot of local Detroit uh, startups and things like that. If you've never been in Detroit and met them person, I'm actually wishing that Cisco bought them, which is scary because but, but, they have such a good product uh, that's really well used. But anyways, they're still doing great research. This is uh, um, a big problem in whole found in Docker. This is also a reminder, this is why when you sign up for hosting companies, you get a virtual machine, not a Docker instance. Docker is for containers and efficiency, not necessarily security. And I've seen people argue saying Docker's as secure as ever, and Duo just kind of proved you wrong because this is when you share kernel space, there's more potential to find problems. It is a well-written uh, software. So it's not – if you're running your own Docker containers, it's a escalation of one of your containers could escalate uh, to a higher level privilege. But if you're the one controlling said containers, which generally is the method by which Docker is used – for example, I use Docker to maintain my forums. I'm not worried because, well, I'm not going to try to log into the Docker instance of my forums and gain root access to my to the parent OS. Um, so I'm – Happy they're aware of it, happy it's getting fixed, but it's not the end of the world. Now, this is where Microsoft buys GitHub, Microsoft gets Git, and now they're changing things. And this was what we want to know, but I don't know how I feel about this, but I think it's kind of neat. So years and years ago, there was always the beer fund, throw me a beer because I wrote some software. And Microsoft said, let's put some professional polish on that idea. So GitHub opens the door to new financial support for open source devs, allowing you to contribute. And to sweeten the deal, Microsoft's doing some matching. Uh, So if I donate $10, Microsoft will match $10 donated to that dev. And I've always thought that's kind of a cool concept because I've always loved supporting open source projects. I've donated to many of them. Uh, Matter of fact, someone reached out to me because they remembered how much money I donated to them. I I gave them like 500 bucks for a project because I used it in my business. And then they said, donate money here. And I'm like, I got $500. So I just gave him money um, to the address he had set up. I think it was PayPal at the time. It was like 10 years ago or whatever. Um, but he reached out to me. He was a dev at a new company at an MSP, oddly enough. And I'm in that same space. So he sent me free copies of his software mm-hmm. to look at. And pretty cool. I've always supported a lot of open source people in different ways. Uh, this is kind of a more 
organized way to do it. I, I, I'm interested in concept. I see some people highlighting worries that only certain projects will get funded. But honestly, I tweeted this out this morning. And someone says, you know, someone who has recently discovered open source, it was a screenshot from Twitter, and they were like, I can't, you know, believe all this free software exists. I don't understand, like, is it made by magic elves? And someone mm-hmm. says, you know, open source exists because of the same reason humans open the door for other humans. Just we're polite to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at people yeah. who create software as an artist, like in, in the standard artist medium format, like oh, someone who paints a painting. They didn't paint that painting necessarily for money. They do it for the sake of art, for the sake of art. They like creating things, creative people, uh, what they're really looking for. I mean, we got bills to pay, so it's not that I'm ever saying money doesn't matter. But creative people get excited when people use the things they created. There's an excitement for a software developer. Google, I made the thing. Look, people are using my thing. That's exciting. You know, Phil wrote that uh, pie shredder uh, Mm -hmm. tool. He's excited that we're using it. He's excited that other people have downloaded and and contributed to that GitHub project. That's just exciting. I make videos not because I'm trying to be a millionaire from YouTube because that's a bad strategy. But I make videos. I'm excited when people find those videos useful. So I think – I don't think it's going to destroy or taint and maybe even enhance or give people more time to become developers. So I think that from what I'm hearing so far, it sounds like a great idea. I I remember one time – I um, submitted a bug to the Mate desktop. It was a really annoying bug where you use your mouse and you click on a window border because you want to move a window. But the window that actually moves is not the one the mouse cursor was on top of. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of like minimize all your windows and then bring them back just so it can understand the order of what window is truly in front. And it was like you know, a really um, horrible bug. And then a couple other people saw it and they're like, yeah, can, can this get fixed? And we're having this problem. And the developer, I guess, um, you know, he was maybe really busy. I don't know what it was. I just really didn't have time to work on it. Then somebody used, I think it was Bounty Source or something like that, and just said, here, $50. If you fix it, you could cash this $50. And then another person um, chipped in and said, I'll add $20 to that. Then I added some money to it. Then other people added money to it. You know what? It got fixed really quick because now the uh, desktop environment is incentivized. You know, the person was able to fix the problem. Everybody benefits from that fix. I think that it's probably the case that developers can be, you know, there's passion that they're doing this, but eventually you get overworked, you get tired, life gets in the way, all these different things. And I think it's good to give back and just show these people we really appreciate what they're doing. I'm a regular donor, and I'm actually uh, – I got to review some of this. I'm going to up it like to the PF Blocker project because it's a side project. He has a day job, and he says, I'd yeah. love this to be my full-time job, but I need – I have bills to pay. You know, I haven't mm-hmm. talked to him in a while, um, but I know I'm a regular contributor via Patreon to him because that's just how he has it set up, and he has been updating it solely, but he says it's a spare time project. So right. um, this is – I think this is going to help solidify uh, some projects that – out there so yeah so i, I, I see too. i see this uh, on the surface it looks really nice you know and uh it what and i we you didn't get into us talking about what microsoft is doing is uh they're doing it fee free mm-hmm. and they're matching oh yeah for a year yeah so uh the the developers are getting 100 percent of the money that's donated which is where amazing. all the other uh locations they or the all the other platforms they they keep their uh, per- percentage and then pass on a percentage, and um, but it's only for the first year. Yeah. And then after that, then they, but they haven't. From what I've seen, they haven't released what those percentages are going to be. 
So it's almost like we're going to get as many people in to doing this now, and then a year from now we're going to start raking in money yeah, from that. There, there is that. It's going to be the uh, just you know the, it's the default, and it's mm-hmm. going to be harder to move away from it at that point. Well, it's already becoming a little bit of a monopoly. Even you know, I know you use GitLab, uh, Jay, but yep. a lot of people don't want to move off GitHub because we've wrote. And Phil said this. He goes, "You know how many scripts I have to rewrite to move off of GitHub? Everything pulls from his right. GitHub. All these different servers to get latest versions of code pulled from GitHub." Yes, it's possible he could then write a script that changes over to something else, but it's it's an environment he's very to used to using, yeah. very familiar with, and it's still free, so it's hard to move off of because it's like mm-hmm. so. Another I, thing to keep in <clears throat> mind too, I don't know if this factors into it or not, but processing credit cards is not free, so mm. um, it's a huge part. And Microsoft yeah. uh, using their billions to fund some of that because uh, that's one of the uh, Patreon's been very open about the problem they have. They said there's a per transaction fee, so when you want right. to give someone a dollar a month, we can't give it to them. And I know this as a business owner who right. has credit cards on the front counter. Those fees of twenty five cents. That's why there's so many minimum charges because there's like a twenty five cent, thirty five cent fee on these dollars that goes to the credit card companies. Right. And, and I used to work for a company involved in that process, so yeah. I would know exactly what goes into that. And um, I don't know how much money it was, but there was, uh, I don't know if it's still the case now, that businesses would be charged like $10,000 or more per transaction if they were caught charging a minimum. Um, some crazy stuff like that. So yeah. these these There's a lot of complexities in it. Like, they get billed. So... I don't know if that's that, that's why Microsoft is saying, well, this is for the first year because they probably understand at some point the costs are going to catch up to them or um, if it's expected that they would just assume that the cost of the transaction is part of their match. I don't know, but um, that's, that's something to keep in mind. If anyone's listening to Microsoft, an ideal methodology that Google had for ads, but this could apply there, and this is how you save the transaction fees. I put into the pool. I put into my $50 a month GitHub pool. So I have one single $50 a month transaction on my credit card that has a $0.25 cent fee. Then you distribute that amongst all the people I want to give the $50 to, a dollar to this person a month, a dollar to that person a month. Yep. And now there's only one transaction fee, but then distributed amongst them. And that's how uh, Patreon is worked around some of that. Mm-hmm. But there's some concepts. Uh, hopefully there's some really smart people going to sort that out because I, in concept I really like it. And I hope more than just GitHub does it. How's that? So. Yeah, and even if the Microsoft one does end up being shady, at the very least, it's going to encourage other platforms to offer something similar. And mm-hmm. the next thing you know, it's just the the normal everyday thing to do to tip the developer, like you tip your waiter or waitress at a restaurant, yeah. give the developer some money, and yeah. um, I think that'll probably make the ecosystem better. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is kind of cool, and this is all related to uh, updates in GNOME and the kernel and everything to make this better. So the Asus ZenScreen USB display is working working much better with uh, Linux distros. I know you talked about this where USB-C displays have gotten better, but sometimes they cause crashes and problems inside of uh, GNOME when you mm-hmm. switch between them. Like, no, that was actually the external GPUs that caused that problem. Yeah. The, dis- the actual... Just plugging a display in doesn't cause right, any but problem. this is USB C, so it's external GPU. Well, um, yeah, because the actual actual having an NVIDIA card on a PCI bus in an external enclosure off a of Thunderbolt would be the one that uh, could crash it. Right, and that's yeah. uh, this is the Zen screen works as an external GPU, and Pharonix oh, okay. has a review of it, and it's a really cool device. Um, but and it he uh, demos it running with Linux, of course, and showing how much better it works with the uh, rendering mm-hmm. and everything else. 
and the, uh, how the performance works on it. So we've seen great improvements on there. And I really like this in concept because basically, as earlier we pointed out, Tom has a tiny little laptop here. Yeah. Um, but this is my only laptop I have at home, only really computer at home. Uh, so having a bigger screen, if I wanted to do some work from home that I could just plug into it, even that that's bigger and having more screen real estate would be very convenient uh, for me to keep having a small form factor laptop but still enjoy when I needed uh, something more, just set something on a table. And it's as thin as the laptop. It's just a screen with I'm, a plug I'm on it. I'm hoping one day to have just one machine that's everything, even it, if that means an yes. external GPU for when I play games and then I, I, it, I want something light and portable. I feel like we're very, very close to that, and maybe System76 will have that because I know there's another laptop that they're about to come out with that's not as big as this one but does have a GPU, so maybe that'll end up being it, but if it's not this year, maybe next year, it's coming. It, yeah, it's, it's slowly getting coming. there the end of the desktop we can just have one laptop on a dock we plug into the player games and all the amazingness and yes yeah i do think that's the future i think canonical was right because i remember them showing this off they called it convergence and it was basically a phone plugged into a keyboard a mouse and a monitor i think they might have been a little ahead of, uh, of their time because that project got discontinued and here we are we're actually at the point where that might even just happen so Moving on to the next topic, I thought I don't remember we really covered this, but Microsoft's uh, getting into having their own kernel running, well, the Linux kernel running inside of Windows mm. alongside. So this is interesting. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, and yes, we got the hate mail. We you were calling us the Microsoft uh, a Microsoft uh, Morning Linux review, and it was this Morning Microsoft review instead because we did cover this oh, when boy. they released Windows Subsystem for Linux. Now they've added an actual kernel instead of doing all the emulation for it. So kind of interesting that they went there with it. I, you know. I think it's, it's a great precursor to just the Windows, Windows replacement that is Linux, which is everybody knows is inevitable at this point. Um, but, you know, of course, they're not going to say it. But why well, not just test the Linux kernel in the system? Maybe Microsoft's and, weaning everybody off Windows 10. Like, we don't want to maintain this either. It's a secret. Mm. Like, now we get the kernel in there. Next thing, now we're going to put a window manager. That's next year's release. They're trying to build up. <laughs> eventually, you won't need it. Yeah, build a distraction on there. I'll just host it all in Azure. That's all we want you guys to do at the end because that's where we make our money that's, now. <laughs> I mean, they did say at one point Windows 10 is the last version of Windows we're going to make, and nobody knew exactly what they mean by that. Does that mean Windows 10 will just be a rolling Windows that they'll just be using until the end of days, I'm, or they literally mean we're doing something else after this? So some insight I have, have are working in the corporate world, working with large companies, is even though Microsoft's on the Fortune 100 list, it doesn't necessarily mean they have a roadmap somewhere. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, I think it, it's true that they could they may they not couldn't. know they may not know or if they do know they're not going to mention it until you know it's I, I love watching that um was it that show silicon valley where the guy says things but everyone takes them always literal so everyone's like oh he must have a plan for it but he really doesn't have a plan but he lets them think he has a plan so he says something and they learn things at the keynote and everyone certain everyone that works from goes i guess this is what we're doing now <laughs> and i think that's how it works sometimes like kind of like the doctor on doctor who how um he or now she always seems like um, there's a plan when there really isn't everything just comes together last minute towards yeah. the last five minutes yeah, exactly so, so. <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing. That, that's that's what they're doing. Um, AMD unveils five third-gen Ryzen CPUs. And I bring this up in, in the Linux context uh, a little bit because Ryzen has uh, become well-supported with the new kernel. And uh, right, the, the 
Intel killers, or wants to call it, I guess we can call it, but the, it's an impressive amount of power you can get for uh, Ryzen now. So the Ryzen 9 3900X is a $500 CPU with 12 cores, 24 threads that are not vulnerable to the said problems like zombie load and things like that. So um, the other option, instead of turning hyperthread off and crippling your Intel uh, Linux install, quit crippling it and just get a Ryzen. And they're available now for incredibly, uh, the new price points are really good for the amount of power you're getting. So that's really impressive. Uh, thought it's worthy of note to mention it. So it's like the alternative um, because we're hoping these kernel things don't cause problems, but you know, just get a Ryzen. Cause that's, I want to see this AMD have more of a um, dominance in laptops. Like, they, new, like I know that, that there's, there, there are laptop models, obviously, but I'd love to see like, the next time Lenovo just unveils their next lineup of, um, you know, ThinkPad T-Series laptops, oh, they're all AMD, just something mm-hmm. crazy cool like that, or System76 or somebody to go that direction, I think would be pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I've seen, there's actually, Acer's got a few, I think, Ryzen ones, I think Dell might, but there's a few companies releasing some Ryzen laptops now, so Intel may be mm-hmm. slowly losing some of their edge on that, uh, especially with all these, you know, processor flaws. They're... they're Epic series, like the Rome processors, which mm-hmm. is the AMD's uh, data center ones, are a, uh, they got the right company to test them out. Maybe you heard of them, Amazon? They're going to build all their new yeah, instances on the new Rome platform, yeah. uh, Epic. So that's going to be interesting uh, from a data mm-hmm. center because that's what they needed was a big win to prove it because no small company is like, oh, it's a big risk. You know, will these work as well? Because AMD's previous data center processors kind of sucked. Um, so when Amazon decided to take a bet on them, that's a big feather in your hat right there because then everyone everyone watches. If the biggest company, the largest hosting provider in the world can use them, well, maybe we can too. That's going to be interesting to look at. Uh, this was actually a pretty cool project. So I didn't know there was an authenticator uh, application that runs on TOTP. Like uh, I'm using Authenticator Plus on my phone, but this runs in Linux uh, for doing two-factor auth as an application. So you can put in your uh, two factors and have your rolling codes all in a application. Mm. And it's hosted over on GitHub and it's just called Authenticator, but it's a whole UI. It's an all open source. Uh, so you can have all your um, you know, two-factor authentications to everything all in a uh, desktop application, which I think is actually really clever. Yeah, uh, that does sound great. I, I don't know if you've heard of it. I use Authy. Yeah, I've heard of Authy and, as well. And um, that is that. It basically is cross-platform and, you know, it has a desktop app. It has a phone app. It has a web app. And when I say cross-platform, I mean everybody but Linux. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, unless you count a Chrome app as, as Linux, um, which is... Right. Um, so ma- maybe that might be an alternative. Then. Yeah, and that's exactly what this is. And the nice thing is with TOTP, you can have it in more than one place. We've actually done this when we set up uh, some of the shared things. Um, me and staff will scan the same QR code so we have the same TOTP so we can both access uh, things. So because some, mm-hmm. some sites we use don't have uh, federate, like they don't have individual users. You can only sign up with one account. So we'll set up an office account, but then each of us will scan the same QR code so each of us has the 2FA. How do you handle it when it asks you to put in the, the code? It'll Each be generating the, the code at the same time, and then you just... We all have the same code. code because we all have the same 2FA. We all scan the same QR code. I mean, like, when you first set up, a, the, you know, a site on that, it yeah. asks you to, to, you know, put in a couple of those codes from your authenticator yep. in a row. Would they then be the same on both people's phones yeah. at the same time? So yep. it wouldn't matter. Exactly. Oh, that's that's smart. Matter of fact, um, uh, 
tip here. Whenever you set up those QR codes, if, if you're ever worried about backing them up, you can physically print them and put them in a safe. And I've known a few people to do that. So they set up the QR codes, print them on a safe. That way, if something happens to your phone where your 2FA is living, you can just get them back out of the safe and rescan them. Someone's like, well, you shouldn't print them because now someone could get them. I'm like, well, if you have my username, my password, and access to my safe, you have really done your due diligence and you may have my application. (laughs) (laughs) You've proven yourself. You have proven yourself a worthy adversary because more likely you'd steal my phone from me than than break in my safe where maybe those are printed and maybe they're not. But uh, really, the beautiful UI, really nice looking, uh, but cool they have that. It's all open source, and I believe they have a flat pack version as well. Um, Another Linux thing that I hadn't seen before, but I thought this was cool. Foliate is an epic ebook reader app for Linux desktops. Now, granted, I usually, if I read books, I read them on my phone, um, but this is kind of cool too. They'll be able to read them uh, in a reads EPUB format, which is just a more popular way a lot of books are uh, delivered. And I do have a lot of EPUB, but I've never, you know, this is a cool open source ebook reader with all the standard ebook reader features. Um, so, Works on uh, EPUB, uh, offers, uh, you know, bookmarking and highlighting of text and everything else on there. So pretty cool application. Um, I have a link to that on there. It's reviewed on OMG Ubuntu. And the last thing I have on here, and um, if you are going, Tom, I just can't move to Linux because Notepad++ is my thing and it's my jam and I don't want to try any other environment. And uh, But don't worry, we have a one-click install option now for Notepad++ under Ubuntu. Notepad++ is open source, but it is traditionally run on Windows. It's popular. It's great. A lot of people really enjoy it and do a lot of work mm-hmm. in it. Um, but it's not been as easy to set it up on a Linux. Well, it is now. It was not before this moment. <laughs> it That's was always great. more That's work. Uh, anytime I'm, I'm unfortunately on a Windows machine, it has to have that. Yeah. Okay. Notepad++. Plus plus. It's just a requirement. Yeah. And now you can get it for uh, Ubuntu, which is pretty awesome. So I thought that was a cool on there. So, uh, and it's a snap install. So sudo snap install Notepad++. Plus plus. I like that instead of plus plus, it's a plus, P-L-U-S spelled out, dash, plus. <laughs> oh, gotcha. And that, and that uh, foliate ebook reader is really going to come in handy because I have a bunch of EPUBs downloaded because while I like to have them on a small device too, if I'm looking at like an IT book or, or learning, you know, programming, I want it on a big screen. So if I can just open that and not have it look crappy like it does in a PDF reader, then I think that's going to be a great solution. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of new, I was, I've been trying to find more applications that we can talk about, uh, it, you know, not just news, but actually apps that might be useful for people to use. That's my, uh, well, people look out too. Yep. All right. Well, that's the end of this, unless we have anything else before Tony falls asleep. I can tell Tony's tired because this is, for those of you that don't know, Tony works the midnight shift now. And so he gets off work, comes here and does this, and then immediately sleeps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's all I've got for today. So Yeah. Energy-wise and news-wise. Mm-hmm. So. That's right. <laughs> You've been listening to episode 308, Don't Get Stung by the Wasp. This is Tony Bemis, Jay LaCroix, and Tom Lawrence. And see you next time, perhaps with some better music. All right, thanks. (laughs) You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. You don't like it. You can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs> Hi, folks. This is Chatter. 
Jay Wisher, Honky Magoo, 5150, and I have started a new podcast. Yeah, I know we should have gotten Brian Lunduke to do the voiceover, but he wanted a script, and none of us are any good at scripting language. Anyway, it's Linux Lugcast. We're at linuxlugcast.com. IRC channel, pound Linux Lugcast on Freenode. We record on the first and third Fridays of the month, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 0200 UTC. We talk about things we've tried, things we got to work, things we failed to get working, things we built, and things we broke. Email us at feedback at linuxlugcast.com, and if we don't know the answer, we'll just tell you to install Arch. That's a joke, son. But join us as we stifle the outcry of voices everywhere for another Linux podcast. Linux Luddites is a show where we try out all the latest free and open source software and then decide we like the old stuff better. More than just news and releases, we check out a wide range of Linux distros, cover your feedback, talk about obscure command line programs, discuss burning issues over a pint, and much, much more. So join me, Paddy, and me, Joe, every two weeks for news, reviews, comments, and generally being grumpy at linuxluddites.com. Linux Luddites, because not all change is progress.